0: Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome, everyone, to the Adversity to Advantage uh, podcast. Today, I'm so privileged to introduce Tanya Brown. Now, she is a survivor of domestic violence herself and has turned this completely into her passion in helping other people communicate with each other. She, she volunteers, does talks for organizations such as Pathways, Women's Aid, Victim Support, and it's amazing that she's with us here today to tell us her story. Welcome, Tanya.
1: Good morning.
0: morning. How are you? I'm
1: very, very good. It's very nice, clear sky here in Derbyshire. It's
0: clear sky here as well, down in London. Thanks for joining us. Um, So so did I get that right? Um, Tell us a little bit more about what you're passionate now in in the work that you do.
1: Yeah, you you did get it right um, completely. And thank you for that lovely build up. I feel very proud of myself now. I think... um, When I was going through my problems, and it was 28 years ago, but as any other survivor of domestic violence will probably agree, even though it was 28 years ago, there are times in my life, even now, where it feels like it was 28 minutes ago. Um, But I worked within an HR department at a college uh, in Nottingham. And, you know, there was no such thing as employee assistance programs uh, back in that day. And some of the managers there were quite badly trained they didn't really know how to do anything other than micromanage and um, all I was to them was the irritating young girl that used to turn up late for work every day looking like she was wearing yesterday's makeup and uh, that's because I was wearing yesterday's makeup because uh, oftentimes I'd be locked in the house or have things taken away from me before I got booted out to go and earn some money And, and from that what I noticed was that there was a lack of compassion um, empathy, patience um, and you know nobody really knew how to help or be patient or you know look after me properly. Well, do you, do you um, think if been, they even knew what was going on? They, they some Some people did but I suppose really it's more about and this is much better in the workplace now spotting that there was a problem and reaching out to me to say are you okay? What's going on?
0: Being brave enough Do to talk about help? it. Yeah. So um, yeah. that's obviously when it was um, at its worst or close to its worst. And I'd, I'd like to yeah. just take us back a little bit and give the give the listeners a little bit of context about what your family situation was like growing up, and maybe the the lead up to then getting into this situation.
1: It might. I mean, I had a lo- I've got still have got a lovely mum and dad. I grew up in quite a middle class sort of. Um, area i suppose um we were quite quite comfortable um we were just happy normal people my parents were quite controlling Uh, my dad still is i love him very much and he's a great dad but he is quite a controlling man so i think i probably grew up being more drawn to men who are quite controlling And, um, also I always grew up because my, my dad's quite, um, what's the word cautious with everything. He doesn't make rash decisions. Um, he doesn't do anything that's maybe a little bit risky. He, he's very cautious. You know, he always drives in the slow lane on the most way. He doesn't, he's not risky with money. And so what happens is it kind of makes you as a child grow up in that environment questioning yourself all the time are you making the right decisions that kind of thing Um, so I suppose I was anxious to leave home quickly because you know I wanted my own life and I wanted to stay up late and that kind of thing Um, and I think probably maybe I did everything a little bit too hastily because of that
0: so getting away from that controlling environment yeah and do you think if um, we're, we're not exposed to maybe risk when we're, we're younger or if that's sort of the context that we were brought up in, that we don't have as much opportunity to maybe build our resilience?
1: Uh, I, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I suppose a message that I would like to put out to anyone who's listening to this, whether you are suffering at the moment or whether you're just a general person listening in, is it actually doesn't matter what environment you grow up in. People make the assumption, um, and I've known magistrates make the assumption and police make the assumption that if you are a sufferer of domestic violence, that you live in, in, you know, probably um, not such a good area or, you know, you're on a low-income family kind of environment. The things that the television portrays, um, and actually that's just not true, it just means that you are unlucky enough to meet the wrong person. I'm going to constantly refer to the wrong person as men or a man because you know, in the main, it does tend to be um, the men that pick on the women. But there are an awful lot of men out there that have also suffered. So, um, but so if if you're listening out there, I do apologise for always referring to men, but obviously that's my experience. I appreciate you saying um, that. So yeah, I think you know, if you are very wrapped up in cotton wool you are it's more of a shock when you hit the real world it's more of a shock that you know men aren't that nice actually and um there are people that are violent and quite cruel and when you've never come across it before you start to believe that you are completely worthless it must be your fault you must be doing something wrong
0: you turn it inwards Um, on yourself and it affects your confidence yeah
1: absolutely and maybe if you haven't grown up in such a cushioned environment maybe you're able to spot it quicker but it doesn't mean that you're any better at handling it than than somebody who was living in a cushioned area
0: of course um so so you you've grown up in this this household you you're looking to leave as soon as possible did did you leave home when you were quite young
1: yeah i was uh, 18
0: and and give us a little bit, bit of context about that that middle period so or maybe early relationships studying working what happened next
1: Well, when I was 14, I met my uh, ex-husband, who was a dream come true for any parent. So if if any of the parents out there listening and they've got uh, teenage daughters and they think about their teenage daughter's future, they always want the perfect man, don't they? That that earns well, that's a gentle soul Mm, that makes their daughter feel like a princess. And this is what he was. Um, he was also quite controlling, but in a very nice way and very, very jealous and possessive. So he basically locked me in a um, a girlfriend cage, metaphorically, um, but treated me very well and was a really good learner, so a very good provider. But all he wanted was to put a ring on my finger and make me his wife. And because my parents were so keen on him and so keen that I go into this wonderful uh, pairing, they encouraged it. Um, and really I was a little bit too young. Sometimes my mum would say, "Mm, you are quite young, but they loved him so much. They just thought, well, there's, there's no problem with this man. Um, you know, he's going to be a really good choice. And so I got married because I was happy to get away from home rules and that kind of thing. I sort of got married very quickly. Um, so that was sort of your, your way out
0: at a very young age.
1: Yeah yeah absolutely and you know really I didn't know anything about life at all um, or anything about men because I'd only had the one boyfriend and um, I had this lovely house you know we had a we had a baby together and I was very spoiled I could have what I wanted. Um, Christmas presents were amazing you know nice birthday presents. It was a very romantic time but really neither of us were old enough or mature enough to actually tackle being married and and actually tackle being parents and eventually we sort of just grew apart as we both grew up and it was probably about 23 that I made the decision which which really hurt him and um, I I don't forgive myself for that actually Um, but I made the decision to to separate from him I wanted I wanted to be a young woman going night clubbing and you know, have men whistle at me and you know be noticed and have an exciting time. And he wasn't up for that. He was, uh, you know, a homebird that was quite jealous, as say, and possessive, and he wanted to stay at home all the time. And I just broke out, if you like. So I went back home to my parents and um, with a young child, with my baby, obviously. <laughs> and um, they went back to the controlling ways. And I went on a night out and met the man that was going to be the man that was going to abuse me um and he was very charming very crocodile smile like um and I was swept off my feet by him because he was big and muscular and uh, in those days it was you know particularly in Nottinghamshire the the big phase was that you always went out with a big guy the one that looked like the doorman there was lots of steroid stuff going on at the time and that sort of thing
0: so you're you're back home, you're living the life you you've met somebody again who's who's super attractive and um, has a lot of charm and appeal for you. um How did things develop from there?
1: uh well, he, as I say, he swept me off my feet, um made me feel like I was the hottest, sexiest thing ever, so much so that I never really noticed other behaviors layers of behaviors underneath it so i'll give you a good example about that because it sticks in my mind now that i should have noticed it and done something about it then as i would now as a, a, an older woman i definitely would but whenever we went to a pub we'd go up to the bar and he'd order his own drink first then he'd look at me and say what do you want not the other way around not what would you like to drink um and then order his drink when we went to a chinese takeaway He'd choose the food, order it, and then that's what we would be eating. He never said, "What would you like?" ever. So those are the things that were going on that I never noticed because he was so good at calling me his baby and you know saying that I look good. But then on the, on the other hand as well, he'd say, "You look really nice in that skirt, but your ankles are a bit too fat."
0: So there was always a but. Or,
1: yeah. I never, ever was I allowed to leave the house feeling a hundred percent.
0: And so you would hold on to that good comment and think, well, he said my skirt was nice, or he said I'm attractive. So I'm just going to ignore the fact that I feel a bit shit about myself because he said something else.
1: Yeah. Um, I remember him saying once, you know, I'm a sort of typical woman that I'm not skinny. I, I wasn't particularly fat then either, but I'm, I'm curvy, you know? And, um, I actually am curvy you know not some people describe themselves as cur- curvy but they're actually overweight but I I actually yes, was you are. and um but I got you know saddlebags on my hips albeit smaller ones and he's, he said to me once I could take you to the gym you know and help you get rid of those whereas my ex-husband and my husband now wouldn't dream of saying something like that just would not dream it so you know in the end I was always worried, was I perfect enough? Did I look good enough?
0: And it sounds like Mm -hmm. comments like that, they're not massive alarm bells, but there's a slow sort of drip, drip effect on on confidence and self-worth and, um, you know, feeling good about yourself. Yeah. And so I guess it's in hindsight that you recognize these as signs of maybe a bigger issue that developed.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, at what point did um, you begin to realize that things maybe weren't healthy or weren't good for you?
1: Um, things like every Friday, we would it would be drinking weekend drinking time, and I'd get home, and he'd be, say, "Quick, make the dinner quickly because we're wasting valuable drinking time." And then we'd insist that we walked everywhere, but I had to wear high-heeled shoes. So we were never allowed to get taxis. We had to walk. And he'd hurry me along quick. You know, we're wasting valuable drinking time and we'd have to rush into the pub. I was never allowed to take a moment to relax after work or wash up from the dinner things or anything like that. And if I was late, he would give me a real dressing down, a real telling off. Um, Then it got to times like birthdays and Christmas and really this started very early on where I never got anything Christmas morning he'd receive the gifts that I'd bought for him and he'd say I'm sorry I didn't get anything for you you know I didn't think you'd need anything there was no apology and rather than me thinking what a bastard I'm gonna leave you I kept thinking well I'll do more for him I'll do even more for him and then maybe he'll love me enough to buy me a Christmas present or a birthday present and it was a polar opposite of what I'd been used to because my ex-husband used to literally you know hide gifts all across the house for me to stumble across on Christmas Day so it was a completely different experience and I actually felt that this sounds a bit crazy I felt that um, somebody up there was punishing me for making a bad decision or breaking my ex-husband's heart and so they were going to give me the polar opposite that's how it felt. So some kind of
0: karma yeah. You were you were very young in the previous relationship and you'd broken his heart. This was now your fault and you deserved to be treated badly. Yeah. yeah. And is this perhaps why you didn't leave that relationship early on? I think that a lot of that was to do with courage, bearing in mind
1: that I'd grown up very cushioned and cocooned with quite a controlling dad and then immediately stepped into being married to a man that cushioned me and controlled me in a very nice way, but I didn't know how to survive by myself.
0: And, and what we haven't talked about is um, whether you have siblings or your your social sort of friendship group with with girlfriends or people that you might might talk to. You know, where where do they feature in this story?
1: Um, I have a I have a brother who was so disgusted in me for daring to leave my marriage that he was really quite unpleasant to me for quite a long time Which sort
0: of reinforce that message that there was something yeah. that was your fault here. Um,
1: then um, I, I didn't have many girlfriends when I was married the first time because you know he didn't really like me going out and, and when I, I'm describing him and making him look in a bad light here and I don't mean to do that but he was very soft and gentle about it but he would manipulate it so I didn't go out as my first husband so I didn't really have an awful lot of girlfriends and when I was with this new guy. Um, he lived in Nottingham, so I'd moved. I'd moved away from my hometown of Litchfield in Staffordshire and moved to Nottingham. So you are
0: now isolated. So I was quite alone.
1: Yeah. yeah, I was. And he'd introduced me to um, his friend's girlfriends and um, they were all a bit standoffish. Now I know why, because nobody liked him. Uh, but they were all a little bit standoffish. I had one friend who was uh, my manager, for a very long time in a job I was at who was much smarter than me and kept saying for God's sake you need to get away from this guy he's horrible and then I met a girl who was the girlfriend of of one of the guys I worked with who was the same age as me and she was quite a although quite posh she was quite a tough character she was very independent and she would do the same thing but I would try and explain to them I can't where am I going to go he takes all of my money well, I've got a mortgage with this man in this little flat that was awful. Um, And I know what will happen. He won't pay the mortgage and it'll give me a bad credit rating. And this is where anxiety, how anxiety works. Now, you'll know in your role, as I do in my role, that how anxiety works. And so, you tend to overthink everything and you think 10 steps ahead, don't you? So, you think, well, if I leave, where I'm going to go because I've got no money. I don't know how to set the telly up. I don't know how to set the heating up. I have my name on that mortgage. He's not going to pay it. So I'm going to get a county court judgment and a bad credit rating. And, you know, maybe I'd just be better off where I am just to keep me with a roof over
0: my head. So you tell yourself Uh, that it will be worse than whatever it is now and that you aren't strong enough and that you wouldn't be able to cope with whatever would happen next. Yeah, to sort absolutely. of rationalize it,
1: and of course I knew that he'd follow me, and you know he'd badger me all the time, and you know it was a lo- it was a very lonely time, very lonely. And
0: you have a child, yeah. and it, the, your child is still pretty young at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. But were, you were working.
1: I was working. Um, my son Matthew, um, who is just lovely. He looks like Hagrid. <laughs> He's very big. Nobody knows how I managed to get such a big lad. But um, he was—he split his time between his dad and I. And, and I actually, that was a very divisive move on my part because I wanted him to be safe. And I wanted to, him to benefit from the wealthier lifestyle that his dad could offer him. Uh, so he split his time between us. I wasn't exactly a weekend parent because I had a few more days than that in the week. So, and his dad paid for him to go to a good school in Staffordshire, which I was happier about. Um, so it wasn't quite so difficult because I'd got support there where it came to Matthew.
0: So you've obviously rationalised a lot of little behaviours over time. You're in survival mode, you're going to work. Um, When you do tell certain very few friends about it um, who do sign some alarm bells, uh, you sort of rationalise it to them and just aren't brave enough, don't know what other options you have. Now, at at what point did this get violent?
1: What happened was he was always... um, Talking about himself, bigging himself up, telling everybody how good looking he was. And he'd always tell me about his girlfriends, his ex girlfriends And they still fancy me and they still want me. And I went out with so-and-so and so-and-so. At one point, this was unbelievable again. Now I'm an older woman. I think, oh, my God, I should have really put him down. We were walking to the pub. It was a Friday. And he turned around and looked at me and he said, anybody I've ever been out with has been the same as me or beneath me. And he meant looks. In looks and I thought then what a horrible person you are I actually started to dislike him um he didn't you know I mean this is a, a podcast where I'm really going to open my heart to everybody and, and just in case someone's suffering the same but he didn't want to have sex with me either um but that made me feel ugly and unwanted he used to tell me that I smelled smelled bad um then we I had the break, he he went off with somebody else basically at a, a couple of one night stands and and so I, I got rid of him, I found out what he'd been doing and I asked him to leave and he left and I think he left because he thought he was going to get a better deal out of this other girl because he, you know, he hadn't, he'd hadn't had everything he could out of me and I met somebody else and he didn't like that, he didn't like the fact that I was so relieved that he'd gone, I didn't chase him or phone him and cry to say please come back and I met somebody else. And he managed to wheedle his way back into my life and talk me back it, to having him back.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and so he put uh, on the charm again.
1: Yeah, put on the charm. And, and then, as soon as he was back, that's when the violence started to teach me a lesson for surviving um, for and for being for okay without him. He was actually better looking than him and, and, t- and tougher than him. Um, and he didn't like that. He didn't like that at all. And that's, you know, a funny little example. When I was a young woman, I used to be a promotions girl. I used to do a lot of the stands at the NEC, um, you know, because I had that look, you know. And um, I was sitting in a pub and there was him and another guy whose name was Dave Appleby. And he looked just like Val Kilmer when he was a young man. Really quite handsome, fine figure of a a bloke. And uh, these really pretty girls came into the pub and it was a time when people could still smoke in pubs and they were wearing gold jackets and they were blonde and they were Benson Hedges girls doing a Benson and, and Hedges promotion. And they were giving out free cigarettes and these, you know, discount cards. And one of them recognized me from the couple of years back when I'd worked with her once in a stand. And she said, oh my goodness, how are you? And, you know, how you look great. And look, JPS are looking for dark haired girls. We're desperate. Come and work with us because you can wear the dark jacket because you've got the dark hair and I said well actually I wouldn't mind doing that because the money is in those days was excellent for doing that work and he she she scanned the table and she looked straight at Dave Bopperby and she said they they could make a lot of use of you as well but she ignored this other guy completely and he did not like that at all didn't like that one bit anyway off they went and i got the girl's phone number and a uh, friend of ours was giving us a lift further up into town and i sat on the in the back seat with him and he put his hand on into my upper thigh grabbed a portion of my thigh muscle squeezed it as hard as he could and twisted it to the point where the muscle in my thigh actually popped oh my goodness and, and really hurt and I looked at him and said, what did you do that for? He said, because I don't want you to go and do that work. Now, it wasn't that he didn't want me to go and do that work because he was possessive, like my first husband would have been. He didn't want me to go and do that work because he hadn't been chosen to do it either. So the envy. He was annoyed that he hadn't been noticed.
0: So there's something about his own self-worth and how he felt about himself yeah. and how he would take that out on you. Yeah. And, and yeah. things like that, I mean, that's just heartbreaking to hear. And I can imagine, you know, women who are, are that much younger who can resonate with an experience like that going, who do I tell, I, the, you know, the shame that must come from an experience like that. You just don't want to believe it's true or it's sinister, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you just don't talk about it. I mean, I mean, do you, did you tell anyone about something like that?
1: I didn't really know, to be honest. I, I was a bit ashamed, And what I found was that the group of friends that we hung around in, as I said earlier, actually, nobody really liked him very much. And they had no sympathy for me because they were all older than me, more independent. They just uh, had the same question in their head that I I would get hundreds of times subsequently still do. And lots of um, survivors of domestic violence will have been asked this question is, why don't you just get out? Mm -hmm. Why don't you just leave him? And in the end, then it it becomes your fault again because you haven't been strong enough to tell him to piss off and and to get out. So So it just uh, reinforces
0: um, how you feel. You end up isolating yourself even more because you know you're just going to feel worse if you talk about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it got to the point where I think the worst night of my life during my time with him was was New Year's Eve. And I still hate New Year's Eve now um, because we'd have to, to go out as early doors as we possibly could and he did not stop drinking until we got booted out of wherever we were and then he would start an argument on purpose a real vicious snarly argument about nothing it could be about a leaf on the floor or how my hair looked he'd deliberately be cruel and unkind and push my buttons and then he'd get violent when we got in behind the door, then he would get violent. I used to dread New Year's Eve and I used to dread Friday nights because he stopped taking me out and he started going out with his mates. And um, I'm going to admit this now to everybody because I'm sure other people have considered doing stuff, but he um, claimed that he was suffering from anxiety and stress and he went to the doctors. Um, played it up big time and the doctor gave him a prescription for something like diazepam. I can't remember the exact prescription, but it came in capsules. And I thought to myself, I was so desperate that one Friday I thought, I'm going to make a real strong, tasting dinner, something like curry. I'm going to break open a couple of these capsules, stir the powder into the food so that when he comes home he'll go to sleep it wasn't a plan to kill him no, desperation it, it was just a plan to knock him out yeah and it worked it worked for what about three Fridays in a row oh it was wonderful he'd come in and just go straight to sleep because of the mixture of the alcohol and I realize now how dangerous of that course. was and that I, you know he could have been arrested but on the fourth Friday, I'd not stirred it in properly, so I got a mouthful of it. You saw, there's something horrible in this curry, and I thought, "Oh God, I'm not going to get away with this again." So, so I
0: had a few, you know, a few weeks of Friday night peace, which was lo- which was lovely. You talked about. I, I often ask people about their rock bottom. You know, uh, how how bad did it get? And it sounds like you've described New Year's Eve uh, uh, as your particular rock bottom. Is is that right? Mm.
2: Hmm. I, I think I had a few rock bottoms, to be honest. I think really poignant things, sad things. So every Saturday I would travel to my parents' house in, in Staffordshire and go and see them and take Matthew with me. And um, it was a Saturday when Matthew was going to stay with his dad. So I spent some time with him and I dropped him off at his dad's house. I went back to my parents hmm. and it was it was Christmas time and so the house was lovely with a tree up and it was it smelled fresh and clean and my parents and their friends were going to a carol concert and my mum had made some lovely food for them to have and it was just wonderful. The house was warm and lovely and I just sat there and watched them and I thought I want to stay here. I don't want to go home but I couldn't tell them because they didn't know what was going on and so that was one day where I thought I'm I realized how unhappy I was how really really unhappy I was and I went home and I looked at him and he'd been in the pub all afternoon and um you know he was asleep and the flat stunk of beer because he'd had so much and it was a trashy mess no matter how hard I tried to keep it clean or tidy it up he you know, made it worse. I just looked at him and I thought, what, what have I become? What is this? Um, and, you know, real beatings. You know, really, really unpleasant. You know, and I wake up in the morning with black eyes and think, oh, I, can't, I just can't cope anymore. I lost a job because of him. He used to keep turning up on, on site and causing problems with me. And he made me get into his van to go out for some lunch and he deliberately got me back to work late, locked me in his van and got back to work late, I got the sack from that job, all sorts of things but I I was studying psychology and wanting to do a degree and um, I couldn't finish it because of him and I was really uh, you know, I'm a badge collector me a shiny badge collector and the fact that even though I've got the learning, I can't put that on my CV because I didn't get finals Um, and because I wasn't able to you know, desperately wanted to be a forensic psychologist and I wasn't able to
0: do it. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if there are friends, family, people around somebody who's going through something like this, you know, what might your family have noticed on that Christmas? What might friends have noticed? You're saying you're, you've are what you got black eyes. There, there's obvious signs that something isn't right. Were people asking the questions? Could they have noticed what was going on? No,
2: no, nobody. Um, I mean, I must have looked tense and unhappy and strung out all the time, but nobody liked him. My parents absolutely hated him. And my mum in the end said, when you come up for, because I used to have Christmas dinner at my parents' house on Boxing Day rather than on Christmas Day, because we had to go to his mum's on Christmas Day, which I, I didn't enjoy either. Um, and my mum said, this year, he's not invited, don't bring him. I don't I don't want him in my house. You might put up with him and it, it's unpleasant behaviour to you and making life difficult with your Matthew and not buying you Christmas presents, and not buying you birthday presents and using all the money and being selfish, but I don't have to put up with him. At that point, she had no idea that actually the, the level that I was, um, of happiness, and the things I was going through was actually a whole lot worse than she thought. she not buying me presents. she had no idea about the violence at that point um, yeah, and i you know i don 't know whether you're going to ask me this question what was the final straw, but the final straw my it was actually that my mum that was the last straw for me because when she discovered what had been going on
0: she did discover um
1: yeah. she she did discover in the end what had been going on because my friend told her. And um, i had the one friend who knew what was happening and she told her. And my mum made moves, let's put it this way, made phone calls to have him dealt with. And I knew then that it had gotten really serious because knowing my mum's luck, she'd have been caught. And so I, I made her put a stop to any plan that she had um and I left and my friend gave me her sofa to sleep on
0: and so I want to move forward into you, there's the physical act of moving out and then there's the yeah. emotional act of rebuilding who you are your self-esteem yeah. um what you think is possible in the world talk us through through that journey how did you get through
1: yeah and it was really hard um because my mum always used to say to me, just walk away, Tanya. doesn't matter about the mortgage or the debt. There comes a time in your life where you have to make a decision. Walk away from it. You can rebuild.
0: You can rebuild and all of that.
1: Yeah, I'd had a really bad night with him. And my friend had said, look, come and stay with me. I can only offer you a sofa. But, you know, come and stay with me. My boyfriend is tougher than him and he won't mess with my boyfriend. So you'll be safe. And at the time, my now husband, and his name is Andrew, he's wonderful, um, he had approached me to say, I really like you, and I'm splitting from my girlfriend, and I'm not frightened of him, I'd like you to be my girlfriend, I, I really like you, and I can give you a better life. And, you know... He wasn't the stereotypical type of bloke I would normally have gone for because I normally go for, you know, really tall blokes with big muscles. And Andrew actually is is quite short. He's a little bit taller than me, but he was very strong, you know, and extremely broad shouldered. And he wasn't a big womanizer or a massive drinker or anything like that. He was just very good company and really, really clever man. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him a try. I'm going to go out with him. I'm going to let him take me out. So I woke up one morning after a particularly bad night with um, with the, the abuser, and um, I just thought, I'm I'm leaving. I'm going to go today. And I looked at him, and he was lying in bed, and I said, I'm leaving you today. And he said, Yeah, whatever. And I said, No, I really am. And I got up, went into this tiny little mouldy bathroom that we had. I showered. I packed a bag and he was still lying in bed looking at me like I was lying. And uh, I packed my bag, got into my car and drove to my friend's house. And she said, you've, you've come, you're here. And it was my birthday the next day and she'd laid on some presents and a cake. And I walked into her house and my birthday is in early April and it was actually snowing at that point. Was it? Mm-hmm. Um, and and she would got the fire on and I thought, I'm going to be okay. Um, I'm really going to be okay. But then days after, you know, you go through the having to make changes and and get used to readjusting to things. Not many people are brilliant with a big change. And leaving your own home, however awful it might have been, and your own entrenched behaviors, I think I would describe it as, is hard. It is a struggle. But I had then got friends coming to the surface to say, finally, well done. So you
0: now had support.
1: I now had support and um I went out on a date with Andrew and he said where should we go and I said I just want to do something normal and simple I don't want to go to a pub to be made to drink I just want to do something normal and he said well I'll tell you what my clothes are rubbish take me clothes shopping I said okay so we went to the Meadow Hall in Sheffield and uh I helped him choose some nice clothes and he took me, our first date was at the food court in the (laughs) Meadow Hall in Sheffield and we had a jacket, potato and cheese and we laughed all the way through the day and laughed all the way home and I thought I can actually be myself with this man. He didn't criticise the way I looked, my hair, my voice, he just enjoyed my company, thoroughly enjoyed my company and I knew then "Mm this was the right I'd done the right thing there's something quite healing and,
0: about laughter as well
1: yeah absolutely I just I, this was the first time I would had a proper belly laugh in six years oh my goodness and it was the first time I'd had birthday gifts apart from my parents obviously in six years
0: and, So, so uh, that relationship lasted six years
1: yeah, I'm, we're still together now. We've been together for about 25 years, 26
0: years. Well, well I mean, the relationship um, with the abuser.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, what happened after that, about two weeks later, he, it dawned on him that I wasn't coming back. And um, he followed Andrew to see where he was going because he got a suspicion that I was going out with Andrew. And uh, he, he saw us, we'd gone in separate cars, and he, he followed him. Then he pulled up behind me and said, where do you think you've been with him? And I, for the first time, thought, I'm completely indifferent to you. I looked at him and said, well, what has that got to do with you? And he said, well, I, you know, I want to know what's going on. I said, well, you've got no right to know. You're not my boyfriend. I dumped you weeks ago. And he followed me into my friend's house. And I looked at him and said, "Um." I advise you very carefully not to cause trouble in Rachel's house because her boyfriend will stove your head in. And he said, don't threaten me with Carl. Don't threaten me with Carl. Uh, that's not fair. I mean, this is how pathetic he was. He could threaten me, but if we admit that he was threatened by somebody, it wasn't fair. You know, all of a sudden he became this righteous person. You know, it wasn't fair, which I just... I,
0: and I'm curious, That's, just at the beginning, you talked about sometimes, you know, it, it was 28 years ago, but sometimes it feels like it's 28 minutes ago. And and yeah. women that I've spoken to that have had this sort of history can often talk about, you know, symptoms of post-traumatic stress or when there are smaller threats that happen that um, it triggers back, you know, the emotional reaction of something much bigger. And so I'm curious just about the after effects over the years of that behavior Um, And how it's impacted your mental health or or what help, you know, you you had to seek in order to to do the amazing work that I know that you do today.
1: Um, I really wasn't aware that it had affected my mental health. To be honest, I was so relieved and felt so proud of myself and powerful. I felt powerful that I'd made this decision and I'd got friends and that he was looking like an idiot And he was really feeling it. So I didn't really, I wasn't aware that it affected my mental health. But what I am aware of now that it clearly did, because two major things, I have to be the one that earns the money.
0: Okay.
1: I have to be the one, I have to know that if if Andrew suddenly buggered off and left me, uh, which he assures me is not going to, but if he ever did, Mm -hmm. that I know that I would be okay because i could go and get myself somewhere to live and still have a life and and i'm very 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 strict on that i get i get very anxious if i worry about money or work coming in that really does send me over the edge i i, I don't sleep because of it so i think that's a definite that it, it that came from that the other thing and i mentioned this earlier and it's only a little thing but i really cannot bear new year's eve i can't bear it i won't do that old lang syne thing the happy new year kissing people how do you cope the with listening that? to the chimes i can't bear it
0: what do you do instead
1: i if if andrew's okay because he loves watching the jules holland Hoot nanny thing because oh, yes. he's really into music so i'm I, you know i kind of relent there but more, mainly we switch the telly off um we make some nice food and that is it or we book to go out for a meal somewhere like a lovely indian restaurant or something we just do something nice but a bit mundane and nothing new year's eve if you know what i mean
0: so you've learned you know strategies for yourself in order to cope with what you know can be triggering moments
1: yeah yeah i definitely do and of course you know some people can't talk about it myself included find it very cathartic to be able to share their experience and for me to be able to if i can just help one woman put seeds in her mind to empower her then i've done a good job and so speaking at women's aid Mm. the last big one that i did was um because government were cutting the funding to lots of these hostels horrific you know these shelters and um they wanted women to alongside of them uh, lobby sort of quite important figures so there was chiefs of police and co- local councillors and all sorts of people there that maybe had a little bit of power and could then lobby the government and we went across the country doing it and they invited somebody from who'd been a victim years ago which was me uh, somebody from uh, an Asian uh, culture who had arranged marriages And somebody who was just in a shelter and just, you know, had just escaped. And it was really, really powerful and fascinating. And um, we were able to sort of speak honestly and quite brutally to these people, asking them, why? Why is it so hard to get a conviction? Why do the police make women jump through hoops of fire before they'll even go and talk to the man? You know, why do you have to turn up with a split nose and a black eye and a broken jaw? Why? You know wh- where is the punishment? And then once they've got the punishment, why is it that judges and magistrates just look down their noses at the woman? What, you know, why don't they do something about it? Why don't they? punish these men i mean if i had my own way women would all be issued with tasers and you know violent men would have i'm um, a violent man tattooed on the forehead and be tagged for the rest of their lives but i obviously know that that's not possible and, but also what it um, does,
0: what that doesn't take into account is the emotional abuse that underlies that you know the the violence is is often the top line of it right um, absolutely yeah. horrific to to experience but what, what i've heard from women is just the constant, consistent emotional put-downs and, and abuse, you know, humiliation, those sorts of things that are even harder yeah. to get convictions for.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not, you know, it can be really silly, simple things. Like um, years ago, you used to get milk delivered to your door and it would be silver top or gold top. So silver top would be pasteurized milk, gold top would be sterilized milk. And silver top came with um, about an inch worth of thick cream, on the top so you'd shake it to you mix the two together whereas I didn't like the taste of the cream so I used to tip it away and he came into the kitchen once and I was just tipping it away and he slapped me around the face and said I've told you not to do that and he grabbed one of my cans of diet coke or whatever it was out of the fridge and in front of me crushed the can that was full of drink um near my face so all the coke Eyes on my face, and he slung the can in the sink, and he said, "You, if I ever catch you tipping the cream away, I shall destroy everything— all your
0: food, all your drinks, everything. Now learn your lesson." Right, which is so much harder to go and bring evidence, you know, to any yeah. kind of person. Yeah. To say, this I mean, you is can't turn up at
1: the police station and say, he's is spilt my diet coke down?" There. No, right, <laughs> that they're
0: exactly. just going to say to go away. And it you? isn't just that one occasion; it's the consistent element that breeds fear and, and doesn't allow yeah. you to have a voice. Um, That's right. So, so the concept, and we're coming to the end. But the the concept of this podcast, and I love that you've talked about sharing your story and being so open and talking at places like Women's Aid, because it's really about how do we turn the worst adversity in our lives into our biggest advantage by sharing mm. it, by finding some purpose within the darkness. Now, mm. if you could look back, would you change anything
1: uh, from the whole experience? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, if I could, if I could go back, I'd have a word with my younger self, yeah. and I'd tell her to be brave. You know, pick your fight. You can't fight with a big abusive man. You, you, you know, you can't do it. Get away. Be brave, because you know there's always something around the corner. There's always progression. You will be okay.
0: Um, so you would reassure your younger self that th- yeah, things will would I'd,
1: I'd, be brave. Exactly from the from the from the first time that he ordered that Chinese takeaway and didn't ask me mm. what I wanted to eat, and then wouldn't because he would never take me to a restaurant to eat. I'd say to that youngest girl, get out now. He's not a very nice man.
0: And so, how how does somebody cultivate bravery?
1: <sighs> That's a really difficult question to answer. I suppose small steps learning to look after yourself um, I th- first of all I think you've got to you've got to get some self-confidence and some self-esteem you've got to learn that people are unkind and sometimes people say things to you just to put you down because they're insecure about themselves it's not your fault and if, if yeah I mean narcissistic people are very much like that aren't they they're sort of all about themselves and then if they, they think you're doing better than them they'll put it down or they'll burst your bubble or you know that kind of thing so I think it's always important to learn and to love yourself to be your own best friend and to know that some people are just not that nice and they are spiteful and you've got to know that actually they could just be being our souls because they're jealous of you I think that's a really important thing to learn once you've got that self-esteem and self-belief in yourself then um that you can move forward a little bit more. Would you, would you uh, also definitely. advise
0: people to talk, just tell someone, no matter how much tell, shame yeah. or you feel, just Get tell help. someone?
1: You know, the shelters now are way better than the shelters when I was suffering. I mean, literally, you were jumping out of the frying pan into sure. the fire. <laughs> they were terrible places. Now the protection is there, and they help you. To be brave. No one wants to leave the house that they've got, their furniture, their clothes, their stuff. Nobody. But what's the alternative? A and, life of a complete misery? You know,
0: it's how, just how stuff. How bad does it need to get for somebody to call a place like Women's Aid?
1: Well, I think, it. I mean, again, depends on the person. Everyone's got a different tolerance level, haven't they? But I think if your children are terrified, that is absolutely. I think if it's affecting your work, um, and your own health if you recognize it's affecting your own health um then then you need to but people don't know you see how good women's aid victim support people don't know they they should they should market themselves more and i think that's probably one of the reasons why i talk about them so much and tell people about them because they're an amazing organization
0: um and, so and is, it, is it a good idea empowering. that when, if you're in doubt, if you're not sure if it's bad enough, but you know that there's a feeling inside you that something's not right, just make the mm-hmm. call, get some yeah. help in making those decisions about what next? Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. And if you're working for an organisation that's got an employee assistance programme, ring the number, ask for help, speak to a counsellor who might be able to help you spot a few things give you support certainly if there'd been such a thing when I was at work it wouldn't have solved the problem with the man but it would have given me some tools and some strength and a plan some backup. To, yeah exactly exactly I was speaking to a very pretty young woman who's a neighbour's daughter about oh gosh five years ago something like that and her, her boyfriend who actually wasn't that nice he didn't wasn't abusive or anything because she's got big brothers that would have killed him if he was but um he wasn't that nice to her and he dumped her And nobody could understand it because she's as pretty as a picture this woman. Seriously, she's a lovely, lovely girl. And she actually works in a safeguarding environment, protecting children. uh, And she does a really good job. And I looked at her and I said, you need to be told this information. Don't look for a boyfriend that's going to be like your dad. Because your dad's an unusual man. He's very good to your mom. You know, not all men are that way. So learn that for a start off. Build your own platform. Get your own money. Once you're an independent person, you can then make choices. It's very much like school playground politics, right? Now, younger women will understand this when they go into the school to take their children into school. And when you're younger, you think, is everybody talking about me? Do they like me? Are they being bitchy? You get affected by it all. As an older woman, I go into school now to pick up my granddaughter. I don't care what they think about me. I wonder if I like them and it's that kind of confidence when you're a young woman if you can build your own platform make sure you've got even if it's a small income you've got some savings you've got something you can make a decision go on holiday with your friends learn what it feels like to be your own person to be able to make your own choices and that way if someone's treating you like crap and making you feel bad about yourself you can tell them to piss off and you can move on to the next you know you've got your own car you've got your own life you don't need them for anything
0: I love that advice. So straight into the point. So final question, final question. What are you mo- most grateful for in life now? Um,
1: gosh. Well, things that I never, well, gestures I'll never forget. So my husband, Andrew Brown, I'm most grateful for him, full stop. He's a tower of strength when I need him and a pain in the ass when I don't need him. <laughs> um, Sounds like the perfect my relationship. Friend, <laughs> Yeah. My friend Rachel Fletcher was the girl that um, gave me a, her sofa. Um, she run, ran me baths when I was covered in blood and made me nice food and looked after me. And without her, I wouldn't have been able to move forward. So I will always be grateful to her. Um I, I just love life because I was able to escape. I learn and know how wonderful life can be. Fresh air, bumblebees, flowers. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness is a big thing for me, huge, big yeah. thing. Um, I you know, I like being given the opportunity to to work, to meet great people. I'm grateful for everything, actually. And I think you are once you've escaped something as sinister as that.
0: The appreciation is is profound and we can see how strong you are just based on your story and how much you you give back to other people. Tanya, thank you so much for being so open with us. I know this will be so useful to so many women. Keep up the good work.
1: Thank you. And I really hope that, that people listening out there, if you are suffering, don't deal with it by yourself. Reach out and get help.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on, as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, PetraVelsBor.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.